I just wanted to clarify something. I'm trying not to be old and stuck in my ways. And we're trying to introduce a new computer that's not working, so we're using mine again. And we're trying to use ProPresenter instead of Keynote, and it's not working. Uh, so the fonts and everything, um, stupid technology. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm being outsmarted, and um, we're just, so there you go. You just saw behind the curtains. It's, it's a rough afternoon on the media front, but got a good word. Uh, in December uh, 26, 2004, I, I don't know if you remember the occasion. Uh, it was right after the Christmas holiday, but there was this 9.0 magnitude earthquake that hit the Indian Ocean, and it created this tsunami that affected uh, about 14 countries. At the end of the day, uh, it left uh, it left 150,000 people dead and millions homeless. In fact, um, they were estimating the energy that this, this, these plates had shifted and it created such a, uh, it was like 600 miles long of this shift and this created this energy the equivalent of what would be 23 atomic bombs. And, and so it was so devastating, and it's interesting to, to visit with people, uh, to see stories. I, you know, obviously, I spent some time looking at it this week. Um, but we have some neighbors who were living abroad, and they were living in France at the time. They had three girls, all kind of in their adolescent age. And they were vacationing for Christmas in Thailand. And so I asked Dave about this. Uh, not realizing what had happened because they were there. And he says, when the tsunami hit, we were together. But there was this huge surge that came on land. And it didn't matter how close you are, how bunkered in you were, the surge came in. And he says, we were separated. I had my wife, but the three girls. And I go, oh my god, you're kidding. He's like, no. Why would I be kidding? I was like, I just said something stupid. Why? No, I know you're not. For three days, did not know where his three girls were. Did not know if his three daughters were even alive. And then as these refugee kind of compounds existed in these kind of community centers and you're finding loved ones and you're seeing lists, they found their three girls. All alive. And they were dead. They found each other before mom and dad found them. Now, you hear that story, and immediately, whether you're a parent or not, we all have loved ones, and we feel that on such an acute level. We feel that in such a personal way. And, and all we do in that moment, whether we hear that story or whether we're in that story, is we experience the preciousness, preciousness of life. If that were me, how would I respond? If that were me, I would not sleep for three days. If that were me, I would be devastated. If that were me. And so we all kind of resonate on some level, whether it happened to us or not. But there is in that moment that I want you to feel this unfiltered, unadulterated awareness that our life, as it is today, right in front of us, is incredibly sacred and incredibly precious. Can that just sit in for a second? Just let that kind of marinate. Because we all come in here with a sort of longing, maybe even with some healthy ambition. We all come in here with a sort of goal setting and, and wanting to grow and develop and evolve into something more, different, better. 
But imagine the surge of life coming in and you being faced with the preciousness of life. Let me tell you what they weren't thinking in, the, in those three days. Let me tell you what my neighbors weren't thinking when they finally found their daughters. They were not concerned about their internet speed at home. They were not concerned about maybe increasing their square footage. They were not thinking about their 401ks. All they were doing was staring bright into the face of the incredible preciousness and fragile state of the life that they have. And there was a lot to celebrate, right? Oh my God, you were lost, but now you're found. I thought I had lost you. It's overwhelming. And the reason I want to start there is because I think the way we feel about our loved ones is often, uh, is always how God feels about God's creation. And all of the creation is precious to God. Just like you experience that emotion, that's how God feels about all of his creation. And the reason I say that is because we have been going through a series looking at some of these prophetic voices. And it's fascinating to go through each unique prophet's calling, their, their, their sort of messaging. But now we're going to look at Jonah, which is maybe one of the most popular uh, stories told. We know about Jonah and the whale. If you grew up with any kind of Sunday school experience, there's this sort of, yeah, I know the story of Jonah. It seems almost fairy tale. But what I want to talk about with Jonah in particular that makes him so unique is that the book of Jonah is actually... The message of Jonah is more about the prophet than it is about his words. When Jonah finally said yes, when Jonah finally heeded the call of God, he showed up in Hebrew. His message was literally five words long. Show up and say, repent for the kingdom of God is here. I mean, that, that was the extent of do this. So when we read Jonah, you have to read it in light of it's his life. And so I'm going to be honest. When I open up the Bible, right now, it starts to feel more like a mirror. Because I don't consider life sacred a lot of time. I don't feel that the relationships I have are as precious. I don't feel like the differences in society are something that I should cherish. And yet God looks at all of creation with this intense preciousness because it's all of his children. Jonah has this obstinance like, Oh, no way. You might like them, but I hate them. I'm not going there. And so I want to revisit a familiar story of Jonah, but look at it in light of what it might reflect back to us, because it's an interesting story, maybe even some kind of uncomfortable reflection of some of our own issues that we need to contend with. Now, genre is really important. If you study any kind of literature, even English Lit 101, what you realize is you have to know the kind of literature you're reading to draw the correct observations. Sounds simple enough. But you would not read a legal document as if it was fiction. You would not read poetry as if it was history. There's important observations to be drawn, and so you have to understand, a third of the Bible is historical, a third of it is poetry, and then a third of it is kind of a mixed match of other things, whether it be apocalyptic writing or eyewitness accounts, whatever. Now, when we read Jonah, it's interesting to read because Jonah has in it a very historic value. It's a true story. And yet, what we have in Jonah is somewhat, it, it, it's, there's almost like a satire involved. 
Really? And, and if you can read through some of the cultures, some of the nuance, and you start to go, this guy's not that compelling. In fact, we often read scripture about these prophetic men and women of God who do God's bidding, and they're the sort of protagonist in this epic tale. Except he's really the big loser. He's the antagonist. He's really easy to hate. Because even when he finally says yes, he's like, stupid God, God's mercy. I knew you were gonna be merciful, and you're like, well done, good and faithful. <laughs> really? That's it? And so I want you to kind of read it through those lens as we just kind of hit. It's a short book, it's just four quick chapters, but I want to revisit it with you. Maybe you open up your Bibles or turn up your apps because uh, I want to just kind of skim through it and, and draw something. So unlike all the other prophets, Jonah's life, Jonah's heart is really the message of the book. Um, and so uh, Jonah 1, uh, verse uh, 1 through 3 says this. The Lord gave this message to Jonah. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, if you read all of this in four chapters, this word great is used again and again. This great fish, this great city, this great message. I mean, there's this sort of adjective that keeps popping up again. And again, this is part of the satire involved because it's actually quite underwhelming, at least Jonah's role in it. There's not a lot of greatness to this, but Jonah's kind of recording this, and he's maybe talking about the greatness of his own calling, but it, 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 it kind of reflects back on him. Um, and, and it says, uh, Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, which is currently Jaffa, uh, in, in an old seaport town of what is Israel uh, today, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Quick glance, so we know what we're talking about. You've got Italy, you see the boot. You've got Tarshish over here in Spain, if it weren't for stupid technology, and you could actually see the whole country. But who would not want to hang out on the Spanish beach versus going to what is Mosul, Iraq? I'm, I'm reflecting that I'm kind of identifying with Jonah here. But here's the thing. The Syrians were there, and that was really the issue more than geography. But just to give you a clear picture, it's like, go here. Heck no. Go there. I choose the beaches of Spain. And, and that's what it is. So, I mean, you, you get it, and this is, I'm not really telling us anything new. But maybe what we need to understand is why was he so averse to Nineveh? Nineveh was a part of the Assyrian Empire. They talked about it being 15 miles wide. It took three days for him to traverse. It was a large, large metropolitan city. But they were known for being incredibly proud and arrogant. They were known for being incredibly violent and intensely anti-Semitic. Where does Jonah live? In Israel. Who is Jonah? An Israelite. It was said, and they were the global military superpower at this time. And so they were so violent. It wasn't just, let's just slit his throat and be done with it. Let's just be ahead of him. Oh, no, no, no. They're going to grab all of the fighting men. And they're going to gouge out their eyes. And then they're going to take all the women and children and just let them hear the screams while they kill them before they turn around and then kill the rest of the men. 
This, it is sort of the latest, this is the renown of the Ninevites. They're like, oh, that's how you go to war? Isn't there some Geneva convention about like how to kill decently? I mean, they were, they, it was very pronounced how vicious and how violent they were. And so here's what we have is this Ninevite, he's like, go there. Uh, and, and so this would be akin to you're a Jew in 1938 and God calls you to go to Berlin to preach the gospel to the Nazi party. I'll join a resistance force, maybe. It's you being called as a Tutsi to go preach God's mercy to the Hutu in 1994. You're like, God, hell no. Hell no. Do you know what these people have done? Do you know what these people have done to your people? He's like, go. Just go. I've seen their wickedness. Will you be a part of my solution? Now, please don't let this be a historical story. Please read into this. Please hear this. Please kind of absorb it as maybe a personal commentary. Because if you're like me, I have this way of tapping the brakes when I feel God calling me and leading me down a path. Whenever we say yes to Christ, obedience is always going to be in question. And we have to deal with how am I giving my whole life to God, because it usually involves some minor level of inconvenience, discomfort. It's not necessarily go preach to the Nazis or, or whatever, but God is always challenging us with deeper levels of obedience that will always challenge greater levels of comfort. This is Jonah's story. This is actually, whether I like to admit it or not, my story. Saying yes, and then not sort of like holding up my fist to God for being so merciful and, and being mad that God would allow the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, as if somehow I'm more deserving of God's abundance than the next guy. So, uh, now, it's easy to dislike Jonah's heart, um, but here's the thing when we read this. Um, the heart, uh, we can like justify, when we do this, it kind of can cloud our judgment, and judgment is often clouded when we assume or believe that God's will for our lives will also align with our desires. Does Jonah want to go? Nope. Is this God's will? Yep. So when you are trying to work out your theology, and when you're trying to discern what God's saying to you, understand this. The center of God's will for each and every one of us is never going to be the path of least resistance. Because if you believe that, that somehow, oh, it's a God thing, which means we get our way. That's always when we use that phrase. It's a God thing. Like, no, you just got your way. And God might or might not have been a part of it. But if we believe that the center of God's will is always going to be the path of least resistance, the cross would have never happened. Jesus was not thrilled with Calvary and walking this path. So we need to understand that where God calls, there's going to be a, a, a requirement of us, of profound obedience. One of the verses that I'm reminded of, that I think is so important, and, and it's not often taught, but in Romans 11, 29, it says this, ready? God's call and his gifts 
are irrevocable. Think about that for a minute. This is in light of Jonah's story, but it's also in light of mine. You have gifts and you have a calling. I think we all have a generic or a general revelation of calling, but I think we have a unique, specific calling to our context, to our relationships, to the influence that God has provided for us, to steward the resources in our life in a way that honors God as the center of our life. But we have to understand that whether we acknowledge them or not, whether we engage them or not, you have gifts and a calling. And this is Jonah's story. He's like, yep, I got a calling. Heck no. Yeah, I've got a word for you. I'm not going to give it. Whether we choose to engage him, whether we choose to believe him, whether we want to acknowledge him, whether we want to like embrace him, we have gifts that we are supposed to employ and, and, and engage for the kingdom of God. I have to tell you, um, for the first decade of being a pastor, I'll be really transparently honest and say, I felt like I settled. Like, this is a, this is a job that anyone can do. I resented having to be in ministry. I'm like, uh, just be a beautiful person, be mildly organized, don't be, piss people off, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, it, I was so underwhelmed in, in so much of what I do, maybe because I didn't see the kind of fruit that I thought I would see or, or whatever. But I went through kind of this crisis of faith and calling, and I was trying to actively pursue a different career path. More than once. And there was this moment where I had to settle in and go, actually, I think that I'm uniquely gifted to be in a pastoral role. I, I don't think anyone can do this. I think everyone has their own expression of maybe what I do. But I had to get more secure and, and stop resenting what I felt like the work that the Lord had set apart. That's my story. But I think you all have your version of that. I think you all, we all need to wrestle with that on some level. So, uh, the first thing that I would simply make one observation, and I just want to make each chapter as kind of an observation, is that the call does not always equal passion. If the center of God's will is not the passive least resistance, then we have to understand that the call of God towards obedience won't always feel like a sweet spot in your life. It won't always feel like this passion. Sometimes it'll just feel like work. That just comes with the territory. And um, uh, when we re begin to read on, the other thing that I would say is we go into chapter two. So after that, he goes and he you know, immediately <clears throat> buys this ticket and he starts sail. It's a storm and they're like, and you have to understand, everyone believed in local deities. And so this guy from Joppa is getting on this ship and these sailors are like, oh my gosh, you have a different God than us. And this storm is raging. so. What have you done to piss off your God? And he's like, no, you should, uh, it's just me. Throw me overboard. They're like, well, if he's this angry, we're not going to throw you overboard. And so they're like throwing all their cargo overboard. And they're like, we can't do that. And finally, he's like, no, it's me. Trust me. Um, so the, he goes overboard as if like, I'd rather die than be obedient to God. Like we do. Uh, and and amazing, uh, you know, God kind of spares them all. He spares them all by getting swallowed up by a giant fish. <clears throat> that doesn't always sound or feel like salvation. That's like out of the frying pan and into the fire. That's, that's how that feels. Except this is God's salvation. 
Don't miss this. In fact, Jesus references this as comparing his three days in the tomb to the three days of being in the belly of the whale. This is a transformational process, and sometimes it feels like it gets worse before it gets better. But what we, what we see out of this beautiful picture is disobedience does not equal abandonment. I think a lot of us live with this, this lie that says, if I don't obey God, then something bad is going to happen, or I'm going to be punished. And that's not actually God's economy. Super important to really understand how God brokers His grace. He doesn't, like, somehow withhold it. No, I think there's consequences for our choices. But here's what we find out. The sailors, they praised God. So after this happens, they're now actually seeing God's presence. And then, and then in this case, Jonah is spared. Uh, and then three days wallowing in the whale becomes a place of transformation. And instead of running from God, Jonah worships God. And in verse 2, he talks about, oh, I recognize now that salvation comes from the Lord. And he's not talking about going to heaven. And I think we get ourselves in trouble when we try to figure out particularly when bad things happen. Uh, maybe this is God's judgment. Oh, maybe God is disciplining me. Or maybe this is just the effects of living in a fallen world. But the message of the Bible, uh, though, is, is that God can redeem all things. So whether it is discipline, whether it is punishment, whether it's just living in a fallen world, God is in all things and can redeem all things. Did God preordain this to be his salvation plan? No. He just worked with his disobedience and running the other way. And he's like, all right, I'm still in this too. And I'm still when you're getting swallowed up. Verse 3, or chapter 3. Then the Lord spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up now and go to the great city of Nineveh and deliver the message that I gave you. This time Jonah obeyed the Lord. And they went to Nineveh, a city so large as for three days to see it all. And on the day that Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the graves to the least, they declared fast and put on burlap and showed their sorrow as a form of mourning. But I've got to say this. There's nothing creative about his message. I mean, have you ever told a child, you need to go apologize? No, like, sorry. You're like, I mean, this is kind of how it says, go proclaim this. Not with any love, not with any kind of fervor, not with any kind of creativity. They're just like, hey, yo, uh, Ben, I came when I was here, you know, you got your sinners, you're going to hell. And the whole town, the whole city is like, really? We are? And, and they're like, they go to a full fast, like as in they stop eating and they start repenting. How do you know it's God? Okay. Because it definitely wasn't the messenger. <laughs> thank God. And now I get to read that and reflect that. Oh, thank God it's not based on the messenger. Thank God he's not dependent on my obedience. Thank God he's not totally dependent on me having the right attitude. This, this kind of warms my heart. And as much as I don't want to like make this autobiographical, Jonah starts to feel like my story. Or at least my resistance. So, third thing is obedience leads to influence. Obedience leads to influence. Um, see, I think sharing God's love in, in, in difficult places comes from a source of weakness and, and not strength. 
So then the question becomes for each of us. Where do you find it hard to share God's love? Where, where is it hard for you to serve? Where, where is it hard for us to actually care, be compassionate? I mean, because some people it's like, yeah, I just can't do that refugee apartment. And for others it's like, yeah, I just can't really love my next door neighbors because they're annoying. Or, you know, I just can't love and serve God in the children's ministry. I, you know, I just can't deal with the people at my work. And I'm saying, well, um, obedience always leads to influence. If we say yes, I think there's a way that God opens up doors and allows our close to you. And so he speaks these five words, and the city has changed. And um, there's this power of brokenness. And, um, I just like this because it's like, yeah, I can be qualified for ministry because, because I'm not without blemish. But we, I know who God is. So here's where it you know, kind of lands the plane. And it's a really weird book. It, it, this book, as a narrative, ends with a thud. Because God does this great work in chapter 3. And, and there's this overlap. There's this really responsiveness. And he kind of wanders off. Uh, and in chapter 4, it says this. Uh, this change of plans greatly upset Jonah. <laughs> And he he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. He said, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away with Tarshish. I knew that you were merciful, compassionate God, slow to anger and filled with unfailing love. As if that's a worthy critique. I knew you were a loving church. I knew you guys were generous. I knew that you guys were servant-hearted. You're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Lord, is it right for you to be angry about this? And so I would simply close by saying, mercy always challenges angry hearts. We are living in an angry world. We are living in in an accusatory world. We... We are living in a vitriolic society. And I'm just saying, you know, mercy always challenges um, angry hearts. And so I just wonder, you know, how how is God um, needing to bring some healing to the anger in our heart? Because there's an anger that I think is truly righteous. That, you know, anger doesn't have to be a negative emotion. I think when anger becomes uh, a source of justice, uh, you know, a source of kind of righteous indignation, I think this is how God intended us to express anger. When anger is expressed as impatience or condescension, when anger is expressed as a form of I'm hurting so I'm going to hurt you, um, you know, we're not living into kind of this alignment with, with God. And so he's like asking the question, which he's asking me, is, is it right for you to be angry? Are you any right to question my ways? And I would simply say this. We have no idea what kind of seeds um, that God is sowing based on our influence. We have no idea, really, of the kind of fruit that, that is germinating. We don't always get to see the harvest. But I would simply contend that how we live our life as light, uh, as loving, as caring, as generous, as hospitable, um, we just have to 
do that because that's who God is and trust God with the results of that. But I think that's a wonderful testimony for the world to be able to see, but it also forms Christ in us without being conditioned for the right response. And I think this is the gospel story being told out. It's a call to go despite how we feel about a certain group or how we feel about a certain person. And I would, I would also add that this is kind of the reason why I wanted to create a church that felt distinctly different. Not because churches don't gather and sing praise music and read scripture and do the kinds of things that we do here, but we wanted to put our money where our mouth was and have a community of practice. So if there's a call that feels like, God damn it, it, it's so hard to just walk into these uncomfortable environments. It's so hard to have to like plan uh, and create these kind of events. And I'm like, yeah, but what is belief without an action? What is faith without a practice? And so we wanted to create distinct laboratory environments so that we can experiment with faith and community together. We can experiment with hospitality and generosity. We can make room and also learn to receive um, in uncomfortable ways, but we would do it together. Because there was something, I think, about spiritual practices that could help shape us more. Now, I would like to do this in a way that um, doesn't require me to get swallowed by a way. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's this moment where it's like, I can deal with some level of discomfort, but I would rather do that proactively and have Christ formed into me than for me to have to go through a rock bottom experience, so to speak. It's like this. Um, I try to maintain a certain level of physical health. Um, and so there's kind of daily pain that I go through, whether it be just profusely sweating or, you know, running out of breath, going up steep hills, or doing some light lifting or stretching when my body doesn't want to be that flexible. But there's these kind of things that I'm conditioning myself. And it's the same thing that God's mind us to do spiritually, emotionally, with Him. That we make ourselves vulnerable and we go, God, I'm going to trust you. I'm not going to just go through my spiritual Christian life and avoid any kind of difficulty. Because that doesn't actually lead to new life. And this is what Jonah is teaching us. I would just like to lead Jonah's life without having to get swallowed up. I mean, yeah, I, I'm a reluctant follower at times. Yeah, I have my insecurities and my fearful, and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And, and God's just courting me into this. It's like, no, I'm from San Francisco. People there don't speak Tuscaloosa. And go there. I'm like, all right, it's fine. I'll go. And there's nice things there. We lived on a lake and good college football, right? I mean, like beautiful relationships. Uh, but this, this is the invitation of God uh, to just keep saying yes for this holy adventure that begins to shape and mold our lives into something that reflects God's... So will you pray with me as we close our time? Our Father in heaven, I, uh, I thank you. I thank you that um, our, uh, your grace uh, is conditioned. Uh, your mercy isn't um, predicated on our obedience or our attitude or our, even our doubts and our disillusionment. I thank you that you're present in all things and that, yes, you allow the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous and me somewhere in the middle of that. God, I pray that you would make us more aware of how you're recording us into obedience <coughs> to live the life that we can't live on our own when we need you for the mm -hmm. So help us have a strong awareness of your presence 
that we might say yes to you, even though it feels like I'm already good enough, or I'm already overwhelmed. Or God, help us to walk in faith and obedience. Thank you.